This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. Each week, government executives and thought leaders join me for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. These individuals are truly changing the way government does business. This is a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the intersection between research and practice. What is data-driven design? What are some of the key challenges in this area? And how is government using data-driven design models? I'll explore these questions with Mark Fuge, Assistant Professor at the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Maryland. So, Mark, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me, Michael. So, you know, this is a very different uh, show. It is a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, uh, exploring the intersection between research and practice. So what I'd like to do today, at least initially, is set some context. So perhaps you could tell us what is big data? Sure. Um, so that's a term that people hear in the news all the time. It means different things to different people. Um, so let's sit back in a second and talk about data in general. So people open up their Excel spreadsheet. They're looking at their quarterly statements. Everyone's kind of used to working with stuff in Excel. Uh, and that's what we, most people think of when they think of data. Or it could be transcripts from an uh, interview you're doing or a book that you're reading. Um, big data just refers to cases where that's kind of difficult to do in, in one of many ways. So an example of this would be um, I can't, if I have a tractor, let's say, that has a sensor on it that's sensing, you know, where the tractor's going so I can manage my crops or something like that, um, I can't store all that in an Excel spreadsheet and use it, right? So that's a case where there's just a large amount of it, right? Um, if I'm on an aircraft engine and I'm reading things in, I can't uh, just kind of put that all in a in an Excel file and deal with, deal with it later, I have to do something right now about it. So that's a case where data is coming at me and I've got to make a decision right now about what to do. So when people talk about big data, they're usually referring to cases like that where there's lots of it, either that they have to store and process or that they have to kind of make decisions on as you go. And as we continue with our conversation, folks will understand why it was necessary, as you well eloquently stated, to understand what data is and then volume, velocity, big data, it's important. Because the next question I have is um, perhaps you could define for us, what is design theory and methodology 
research. Sure. So, um, so my work is in the area, the intersection between data and design, right? So and when people by design, what do you mean? Just if yeah, you can make exactly. Sure you yeah. Talk so about I think that. when most people think about design, uh, they'll think about two types of things. So they'll think designer jeans or designer <laughs> handbags, right? Uh, so there they're thinking of a, a designer as a person, person, right? So there'll be some famous designers that they're that they're, and these can be people like architects, right? So many people consider Frank Gehry to be a, a designer, or people would think of design as uh, as a thing. You know, oh, that's a cool design of that car. Cars are cool design. Really, the way, the way that I think about design is an activity. It's actually one of the most creative things that humans do. It's one of the things that makes us human, actually, is our ability to create things. It's kind of an act of creation. So when I think and when I talk about design, I'm talking about the person who's making that designer handbag or the person that's uh, designing that car. They're going through a very creative process where they're basically making stuff from scratch. And design theory and methodology are basically a group of people that study how people do that and how to make them do it better. That's excellent. So what are, getting to your reason for being here in the sweet spot of your portfolio, but what are data-driven models and how have these models, so we bring the big data to data and the design uh, methodology together to create a data-driven model, how have they become increasingly common in design? Sure. So I think when most people think about design, they think of some lone genius who sits in a room, right? And in many cases are like this, right, where somebody kind of sits there and then they think really hard about how to solve a problem. uh, And then they come up with something neat just through sort of sheer force and intellect or historical data, how people have done it previously. Uh, It's a very kind of artisan activity in that sense. But people are starting to realize that, you know, we're leaving a lot of stuff on the table by not looking at collecting data about what happens when we design something and put it into the world. So let's go to an example of, so I actually have a colleague at uh, Illinois who works on uh, tractors, stuff for tractors. So there's a case where someone would think really hard about how to make the tractor and they put it out in the field. And most of the time, people might not do much after that. But if I have ways to kind of gather information about how what I made is actually working, that can get fed back to me. I can be a better human. I can I can do a better job of creating better tractors uh, as a result of that. Interesting. So what kinds of problems are, and that might be a hint at what you're referring to, but what kinds of problems are models like this useful and how and when are design-driven models harmful or useful to, to advancing the theory and methodology of design? The use of coupling kind of data with humans is interesting because in some sense I feel like it's bringing kind of the best of both worlds. So humans are really great at being able to find connections between unlikely places and data is great at allowing us to kind of see a big picture of of data that we're collecting. But it's certainly not useful in all circumstances. So um, one area that it's useful is where there's a lot of information that you can gather about how people are using a product that can help you make it better. Um, so the, the the tractor example would be one. Um, there's a, a colleague of mine at University of Buffalo who looks at uh, how people use smart fridges. So would I design a fridge differently if the fridge could sense how I'm using it? So what items am I placing in there? Uh, what kind of things am I putting in? How long are they in there for? Maybe I would actually design the, the fridge differently. So that's an area where it would be beneficial. Uh, An area where I think, you know, you want to be careful is or where it might be potentially harmful would be um, a lot of the times these things learn models from behavior, but there's many sort of built-in biases 
in terms of people's behavior. So we've seen this a lot in the news for things like face recognition. So uh, kind of a lot of fire for kind of learning uh, biases inherent in the data. We wouldn't want our products necessarily to learn those. Um, And so that's still an open question. People are still studying how to best do that. Mm -hmm. So what does it entail for a given model or analysis uh, to be data-driven compared to other approaches to studying design? Sure. Um, So traditionally, when people think about how I'm going to make a product, um, they would think about kind of physics and math, right? The stuff that most people kind of took in high school with the launching or, you know, a rocket or a ball through the air. Uh, So uh, a lot of mechanical engineering and product design is involved in kind of understanding the physical world and then how can we change that physical world. And that comes from a lot of um, thinking about a problem. How do I decompose it? How do I, I write it down? Data-driven models are very different than that in the sense that there we're trying to look at signals in the world. So what's the tractor doing? What's the fridge doing? And trying to extract out a model kind of backwards from that. Um, And so I think that what you find is that there's a lot of strength in in doing both, right? So um, mechanical engineers or engineers in general or scientists are just generally really good at looking at the world and finding out some way of making sense of it by physics or chemistry or mathematics. And data is useful for basically um, taking the counterpoint to that and saying, okay, well, here's what I'm seeing in the world. Does your model make sense with respect to this data? Can it tell me something that maybe your existing model of the world didn't know? There are sort of underlying things about how a you know, fridge or tractor works that you wouldn't have gotten from your you know, sitting down and thinking really hard about the physics and math. What are some of the key challenges facing data-driven design? We'll explore this question and so much more when this special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How are autonomous technologies advancing in healthcare? What's being done to enhance medical device design? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and more with Professors Jin O'Han and Monifa Von Cook from the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Maryland. Next week on a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the intersection of research and practice. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Mark Fuge, assistant professor at the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Maryland. So I'd like to like uncouple, sort of get into this a little bit. What are some of the outcome measures you're looking for? Are traditional accuracy or recall measures sufficient? Or must, um, you know, must you explicitly map say, a design outcome from industry? Sure. So I think traditionally when people think about a data-driven model, they're thinking of sort of buzzwords like machine learning that's exactly. in there. Um, and there, uh, you, you know, you're looking at kind of very traditional ways of, of measuring success, right? Either I, I classified the cat face correctly or, or I didn't. And when it comes to design, because you're, you're moderating that through 
you know, a physical system like a tractor, it's a little bit unclear exactly how to quantify success there, right? So I'll give you an, an example. So uh, I have a collaborator at, um, at Autodesk, and so one of the things that they're looking at is how do I do uh, simulations to help people design better cars, um, and so one of the things you have to do when you want to design a car is you run it through uh, this, this computer code. It takes a really long time, and you can figure out how fast the car is going to go, how much force is on it, et cetera. Uh, and they're using a data-driven model to basically speed that up so they can do it you know, 100 times faster. And now there's an interesting question there because if I'm using that model, originally those, those codes are kind of vetted through physics, Right, where I kind of understand how th- I can go to the lab, I can test it, I can see, oh, does this work? These data-driven models, they kind of match well the original codes, but then there's always a question of, well, okay, if I put it into a different area um, than they were trained on, Mm -hmm. should I expect them to perform as the same way as well? Um, And people are still struggling with that now. Interesting. So, you know, are there any other common design problems or are all problems so different and dynamic that models should not predict um, based on past or from different problems? Is, is there a sense of a, a common design problem? Yeah. So, um, so where this would usually come up, right, is if I have – so say I'm working on some problem, say modeling a car. Right, and, uh, and how to do that well. Mm-hmm. And I work really hard on that. I work for that for a number of years, and I feel like I got a good solution to it. I can verify it. Um, now, I want to take all that work and go to the design of a tractor, mm-hmm. let's say. Should I be able to transport that over to a tractor? Maybe. Maybe not, right? Maybe if it's about the engine, sure. Mm-hmm. If it's about how the flow moves over it, you know, I don't know. Should, it, uh, should the stuff I did for the car translate to a design of a new smartphone? Mm-hmm. You know, probably not, right? So I think one of the things that we think about a lot in engineering is how do I take my understanding of one problem and kind of morph it and modify it into a, a different problem that I might see? And again, that's still an open question that people are, are wrestling with. So, you know, the next question I have is regarding doing that and the transferability. But how do you build trust in uh, data-driven models? And, and can we complement data-driven models with traditional physics-based models to test validity. Yeah, that's a, that's a great observation. So I think in general, how people approach validation would be, or the, I should say like the traditional way that you would do it, is yeah, exactly like what you described. So I have some kind of a physical model that I can run. Maybe it's very expensive or it's a lab test. So I go into the lab, I set up the car, I run the air by it, I measure how the air is going, and then I check to see does that model uh, fit well with what I'm predicting. Usually I hide I hide the result and it's like a test, right? <laughs> I bring it up. I say, it's test time. You know, what do you think? Oh, I think the answer is this. Oh, you got it wrong. I slap its hand and, and it's good to go. That's the traditional way it's done. Uh, that can be a little bit tricky because how do I know that I've tested enough things, right? If I, if I have a test with 10 questions, you know, maybe I really needed 12 questions or 13 questions to have confidence that I can use it. Uh, and so the other strategy which people are starting to work on and have been working on for a little bit, uh, but it's, it's really exciting to me at least, is this idea of can we bake in assumptions or, or the things that we know about how the world works mm-hmm. into these data-driven models. So the stuff you hear on the news typically about sure. you know the use of machine learning, not, not always the case, but in, in many cases, it's kind of like a black box, right? You don't really know what's going on in it. That's why there's all this interest in what they call explainable AI nowadays. Can we yes, try and explain yes. what the machine is doing? So part of that is you kind of try and open the box and, and play with different knobs and try and see if I change this output, how does things change? And a counter approach to that would say, well, what if we build the box 
with certain things in it that we that we know about. So, for example, if I know that physics has to behave the same way, like I open up a chapter in my physics textbook, I look at it and say, okay, it tells me there what happens when I poke this thing this hard. Clearly, we should be able to take, you know, hundreds of years, uh, centuries even, of, of, of uh, understanding about the physical world and, and bake them into that black box. And that's something where people are now starting to to do work in, um, which is really exciting because that bridges the kind of physical understanding with these kind of new powers that these machine learning models get us. And how does that baking it in kind of relate to handling systems we haven't seen yet or, you know, to the extent past data is really predictive of future systems, given what we learned from past systems. Yeah. So I think that goes back to your trust question, yeah. right? So, you know, say I do build a model that's based on a, a car, right? Say it's, you know, some some model from last year. And maybe I'm fairly confident that it'll apply to next year's model, but maybe I'm less confident that it'll apply between my sedan and my yes. SUV, right? But if we have some kind of physical understanding of that system. So I can say, look, here's the output that it's saying for the sedan. Here's the output that's saying for the SUV. Based off of physics, do I think that it should predict that? Right? And that can act as a way of kind of building trust. So if there's ways to code or, or put into the black box different ways of, of capturing what we intuitively know and, and can mathematically describe about the physical world, the kind of stuff that you know Archimedes and, and then we're working on, if we can put that stuff into the black box, then that's another vehicle for trust. And we know that if it's not matching that or if it's giving us behavior that looks like, okay, this is not, this shouldn't be what it's giving us, that acts as a check for us. We don't have to trust trust necessarily what the machine is is doing. Yeah. So, you know, switching gears a bit, um, that's a lot of information. Uh, You kind of summarized it for us in like 15 to 20 minutes, but it's fascinating stuff. And I really suggest our listeners take a look at at your work in more detail. But how do you, how do we incentivize research culture amenable to data-driven research design. For example, sharing data and and, and benchmarking. How do we do that? How do we make design, data-driven design work and foster a research culture? Sure. So so this is actually something that the machine learning community has done a superb job at, right? So there, a lot of times when you pick up a new piece of work that you might hear about in the news, it's very easy to exactly replicate what they did. Uh, There's lots of available data sets uh, that you can go and you can download for testing that, right? So I can go and I can look at a bunch of images for that they use for um, post the post office, um, and I can double-check that my thing's doing well on that. So for design, we, we don't have yet that kind of corpus that's really kind of given rise to the massive progress that you've seen in machine learning. Um, and so part of that is a, is a culture question, right? So in, in the physics world or in, in the engineering world, um, because we have a, a lot of kind of fundamental models that we kind of all agree on. So when I say model here, I mean, you know, that you open your phys- physics textbook and we kind of all agree that, that that's the case. Um, if I'm looking at something like a car, I can go and I can take each piece and I can use my physics textbook and my math textbook to figure out how each piece should should work. We don't really yet have a kind of common set of benchmark data sets for something like a car, right? Because the, the way that we think about the problem is going through a, a bit of a shift, right? So before it was break down all the pieces, model all the pieces, assemble them together, and maybe I can figure out how the, the car, you know, does its thing. And that was worked really well, and it's still going to work really well. But this idea of, okay, well, let's gather some information now about the car and share that with people is tricky, one, because of 
of the big data problems with it. So how do I store and distribute that data, right? Um, I can't just put it on my website and have people down, <laughs> download it. Uh, and then two, there's actually interesting proprietary uh, concerns there, which maybe don't apply in, in other machine learning cases, right? So if I'm uh, a big car manufacturer, do I really want people to be able to download all of the stats about how my car operates? What if my competitors find it? Can they learn something? I mean, it's one thing if I hire kind of the best technical people to go in and, and look at all the parts and I just hire better people than everybody else. If I have these algorithms that can now learn something about how the system functions, does that put me at a competitive disadvantage? Um, so there's actually interesting questions about privacy there as well. And can we build models that have baked in privacy to it? It's the same thing when people hear on uh, the internet about uh, how you know, Facebook is doing stuff with you know their user data and people being concerned about you know how internet companies are using their personal data. You can think of products being the same way. Excellent point. You know, so this uh, you know first uh, half of the show has been really geared towards giving folks a very quick tutorial on uh, you know. Uh, design, uh, data-driven design and method. Uh, but before we close it and get into more practical applications, um, I was really wondering as I was thinking about this conversation is how do we balance causation with prediction in data-driven models? Sure. So generally when people look at a data-driven model, right, what they're trying to do is say, Here's a bunch of stuff that I've seen, and here's the the outcomes, right? So I see a bunch of cat, you know, images. Is this a cat or not a cat? And I'm trying to, to predict that. Um, I think where people get really excited about the use of these data-driven models is they say, oh, great. I can now go and I put a bunch of sensors on everything, and then I can figure out exactly what people want uh, about my car. Like, what's going to cause them to buy my car? Or what's going to, you know, if I in instrument all this stuff in a hospital, can I find better kind of health policies that are going to improve outcomes for people? And the kind of promise to some extent and uh, some of the hype around the use of data, big data or data-driven models is that they can get to that. And that's tricky, right? Because it's not often the case that a model that's great at predicting things is also good at uncovering kind of the causal factors. Uh, and this is a tension that, you know, as researchers, as scientists, as engineers trying to improve the world we run into is that people often look at something and say, great, you've shown me this on this car. If I change this on my car, I can now cause people to to do X, Y, Z. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, so I think it's uh, you have to be a little bit cautious with how people are using data-driven models if they're, if they're trying to prove causation about something. What is the ideal lab? We'll explore this question and so much more when this special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org.
Welcome back to the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the intersection of research and practice. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Mark Fuge, Assistant Professor at the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Maryland. So, uh, Mark, what is the mission and purpose of the Informatics for Design, Engineering, and Learning Lab, the Ideal Lab? Yeah. So, so that's uh, the lab that I run at the University of Maryland. Uh, basically, our, our purpose is to help um, industries and people design better products at the end of the day, right, by understanding why they make the decisions they do and using data to help them make that better. So that's the informatics part is the kind of data piece that we bring to it. At the end of the day, it's, it's helping people be more creative. Mm-hmm. So how long has it existed? How is it? Is it a course? Is it a, a school? I mean, what is it? What, what's the nuts and bolts of this particular lab? More importantly, along with that role, what are your other roles and responsibilities, whether it's, you know, vis-a-vis the lab or the Center for Risk, I believe you're part of, too? Um, why don't you tell us more about yourself then? Uh, sure. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a researcher and a scientist, so I, I direct a lab of people. So there is a physical There's space, a physical, lab, physical space with uh, people. So it's, it's an, an actual lab um, that, that I direct a bunch of researchers working on various projects, um, both for industry companies as well as government agencies. Um, but then also, you know, I'm a faculty member, so one of my responsibilities is also teaching um, and, and promoting the University of Maryland's mission as well as an educational institution. So, you know, getting into, you know, the work that you're doing at, at the lab and and your work at the uh, University of Maryland. Yeah, every year, researchers and industry practitioners alike propose hundreds of new design methods. And I'd like to get your perspective on how can uh, we best make sense of these methods, and is there any kind of structure to these methods that we can leverage to help sort of novices learn and understand design? Sure. Okay. So this is an area that, that I've done quite a bit of work in. So this is... Um, Really, one of the things that I find most interesting about the work that I do is is can we take lots of different creative people doing different things and try and use the data that they're generating about it to learn something about how we how we do design. Um, so in this particular instance, I have done work on looking at, okay, so w- when we talk about designing a product, usually what that means is people take a series of steps, right? So I might go talk to some customers. I'll come back to my office and I will think about, okay, well, based on what the customers told me, is there some direction we need to go? And then I might prototype something, take it back to the customer. So these are all different steps that people do in the process from going from an idea in my head mm-hmm. to a physical thing that you buy in the store. And it turns out pe- many different people have different ways of doing that. And so one of the things we've been able to do is look at, okay, if I collect lots of different examples or case studies of how people have gone through and done that, uh, I can actually see that there are certain steps or clusters of steps that people all do together, which is interesting. And this is the kind of thing that you wouldn't get. So if I just gave you a case file with thousands of different projects, you'd read like one or two of them. It'd be kind of interesting. Maybe you'd see some themes, uh, but it's not the kind of thing that humans are are going to do. But this is the kind of thing where an algorithm could come in and say, okay, well, let me read through those thousands of case studies, and can I see patterns in what people do and emerge? It turns out the answer to that is, is yeah, there's actually lots of different structures and, and ways that people solve problems that you wouldn't get just by looking at individual one or two pieces. So, Mark, would you tell us more about the open IDEO community? What has come out of this effort? Sure. So, so they're really... So I don't... Um, 
uh, you know, that's not something I run. This is an independent third party. It's an open source platform run by a design consultancy called IDEO. So what's interesting about them is they have these kind of big picture social mission challenges. So what they'll do is they'll post a, a challenge online. So an example of this would be how do we uh, restore vibrancy to cities facing economic decline? So I think, you know, a city that used to be good, but now is maybe going through some tough times. What are some things we can do, what products, social services, government policy programs that we could do to maybe solve that? And so what's interesting about this community is that people will come and they'll submit uh, hundreds, sometimes thousands of ideas on how to solve that challenge. And what's cool about that is that I can read your idea, you can read my idea, and together we can come up with something that maybe neither one of us would come up with. So what's interesting to me about that is, uh, one, well, that it, that it works at all. So they've actually had <laughs> so they've actually had several examples. I mean, not obviously not every idea ends up being fielded, but there are several examples where somebody will post something, uh, they'll work on it together with, let's say, 10, 20 other people, and eventually there will be uh, an example uh, you know, in the world that they you can go and, and see. So, you know, an example was this um, Made in the Lower East Side program for this uh, vibrancy challenge that I was talking about. So this is um, a, a pop-up. They, they create these little pop-up stores in different cities where if I have a dilapidated storefront, I can actually go in and set up like a business or a classroom to kind of revitalize a neighborhood. So that's something that came out of some of the efforts of people in this community. Um, so what, what I find interesting as a researcher is trying to figure out like how does that work and can I make that better for people? Because that's when you hear about things like crowdsourcing or open innovation, this is the kind of thing people usually think about, but the, the kind of devil's in the details. You know, how do I actually make that work? Uh, and are there ways to make that happen better? So, you know, can you help me understand what is augmented reality interfaces? What are they? Uh, sure. So that that's um, other other work that I've I've done. So augmented reality. If you've ever heard of the um, kind of Oculus VR, like the the thing. All right. So that's called virtual reality. So that's where I put on a, a headset uh, and I look around. Uh, I can basically look around a virtual world. Augmented reality refers to uh, both the physical and the real. So I could look at this table or look at my car and I could see digital stuff that appears to be on the real thing. So it's augmenting reality in that sense. So what's interesting from where, we, where people have used this in design has to do with things like, can I make, can I sort of physically sculpt an object that I want to create? So rather than going like clicking with a mouse on my computer to create a car, can I physically sculpt it like with my hands and see it there in front of me? People have also used this a lot in manufacturing. So if you think about how are we going to, you know, do very complex manufacturing tasks, one of the things I can do is say, if I'm assembling a car, I can actually put on a headset and actually see how the pieces go together, right? So you can imagine I'm trying to, you know, top up my oil in my car, you know, but I've never done it before. I can put on this headset and show me, oh, here's, based off what I see about your car, here's where the oil should be, here's what the dipstick is, you know, here's how you would go about doing it. So that's a really interesting way to bring uh, both experts as well as just regular people to interact with their products in new ways. It's fascinating. It's also a learning capacity that's uh, well, untapped. That's really interesting. So, you know, something like that goes right into my next question, which is you know, measuring design creativity is, uh, is crucial to evaluating the effectiveness of idea generation methods. How do you systematically find out what makes an idea good or creative? And in doing so, how can you use probabilistic terms to create a family of repeatable creative metrics. Sure. Okay. So, I mean, when we talk, when we say that we want to work on work that that helps make 
people more creative, a kind of natural, you know, if I was to walk into your office and say, hey, you know, here's, you give me $10,000 and I'll teach you how to be creative, uh, you would rightfully say, well, okay, that's nice and, you know, maybe there's something there, but uh, I want you to prove to me that that's, that's true before I, you know, give you a bunch of money to do this, right? There's no uh, shortage of consultancies in the world that will, uh, that will walk in to do that, right? And, and that might be fine if I'm selling a product, but as, as a researcher, right, I'm, I'm, I have to be able to prove to people that if, I'm, if you, you're going to use this, that it's, that it's good. And so one of the challenges to that is that uh, creativity is kind of very subjective and there's different ways that people break it down, right? Um, generally speaking, I mean, um, people in you know, engineering obviously study this because of products, but people in management focus on this as well. Architects, industrial designers, we all are interested in what makes this thing creative. Generally, people have come down with a couple of different ways they decompose this. So is it new? Have I ever seen it before? Uh, does it provide some value to me? And if usually if it's new and provides some value to me, uh, most people agree that at least those things are are important. But then the question is, how do I measure that? So the way that is probably the most popular right now uh, is something that's called the consensual assessment technique. It's very popular in the business and psychology communities. This is basically where I have a bunch of experts who work in that area. So if I'm doing designing cell phones, I'll get a couple of cell phone experts or executives or designers, and then they will be responsible for telling me what is novel and what has high value. Um, part of the problem with this and where you bring the kind of the data side into it is I can't do that for everything. So if you go and you generate a thousand ideas, it's going to take me a lot of time. And these experts are usually pretty expensive. I mean, they don't have all the time in the world to do this, right? And so there's an interesting question there which says, well, we have people uh, very talented people who are willing to provide us data on what is and is not creative. So a natural question would be, can we learn, can we take those people's assessments and figure out what does make something creative? So that's a lot of the work that I do is in uh, is taking data from people and then using those to kind of update assessments on, on what might make products similar or not. How has data-driven design been used in the business of government? We'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform, and most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. How can technology transform the way government does business? How can the federal government reduce costs and improve services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies? And what are those specific cost reduction strategies? Today, I'll explore these questions and the recent IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, with Dan Chenick, Executive Director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government, and Haynes Cooney. Dan, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you as always. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. Haynes, welcome. First Thank time. You. Thank you very much, Michael. Appreciate Maybe it. Maybe not the, the last, hopefully. Hopefully not. So, Dan, I want to talk about uh, the recent uh, TCC report, the Technology CEO Council report, the government we need. What was the purpose of the report? What prompted its development? So, the idea is that companies over the last several decades have modernized their operations in ways that have achieved significant savings in very large enterprises that are often multinational in scale. Government is similarly complex and in many cases more complex, but 
uh, governments have traditionally not adopted technology to achieve these kinds of savings as quickly as companies have. There's been pockets of modernization in government that have worked well. The, the Technology CEO Council, which is a, a group of leading companies, IBM uh, and several other companies uh, are involved, took a look at this concept several years ago around how could government modernize to be to achieve the efficiencies that private sector enterprise have done and produced a report um, six years ago uh, called One Trillion Reasons, um, which identified ways that the government could, could drive significant savings over a decade. This report's an, essentially an update and bringing forward those ideas into the uh, further into the 21st century with the advent of new technologies, new opportunities, and new uh, practices and lessons learned that government can apply. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the center uh, recently as well uh, published a companion piece called um, Transforming Government Through Technology. Why did, we, why did we decide to do a piece, a standalone piece, and how does it complement the report? Are they basically the same reports? So they're, they're the same topics, and the reports draw on, on the same content. Uh, we thought, and we worked with the Technology CEO Council uh, staff uh, and team, to say that you, a companion report that's sort of shorter, um, sort of summary form that can be handed out in uh, and sort of get to the issues. Uh, the, the TCC report really provides a lot of the depth and detail. The center report's more of a summary that you can sort of get into it as, as a decision maker uh, at the first instance. Wonderful. Great. So, uh, Haynes, the report, um, both the TCC report and our report, um, assert that I think um, sustainable cost reductions of more than a trillion dollars over 10 years if the government adopts private sector uh, strategies. Before we delve into each one of these strategies, can you give us a high-level overview of each? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. And, and really part of our focus on making the recommendations in this uh, set of reports is really about implementation and implementability. And so we wanted to frame them in uh, a way that was familiar uh, to government leaders thinking about how they have executed programs in the past. And so there are really sort of four categories uh, that we've used. Uh, the, the first one is really about imp improving resource management. So leveraging cross-agency opportunities, thinking about integration across domains and networks, thinking about consolidation of core services. The second area is around improving government decision-making. So how are we more effectively leveraging available data uh, and making better informed choices? Uh, the third is investing in modern technology. Um, strategic investments are key to achieving some of the long-term cost efficiencies and delivering the performance and services that are expected from a modern, efficient enterprise. Uh, citizens uh, have come to expect a certain level of service from anyone, whether that's uh, private sector or the government, and the government has some room to catch up in some of those areas. And then the fourth is really around optimization of processes. So uh, it's critical that the government recognizes and reinforces a need to continually uh, reinforce and improve processes. It's not a one-time thing. Uh, this is building in the flexibility and agility to continue to keep up with technological trends. And so across those four areas, we've highlighted some specific things, and we can probably yeah, get into the detail there. So, uh, Dan, uh, would you define for us shared services uh, um, and... Um, how does it work? What are the benefits realized by the use of shared services? Sure. Shared services is a concept that's been adopted in industry um, for several decades. As companies have modernized, they've, they've looked to basically reduce uh, the need for separate technology, separate financial management, separate HR uh, on the administrative side. Um, uh, 
operations, technology process operations, so that they basically share those operations across their operating divisions. The gov federal government about 15 years ago actually started down the road towards shared services by designating certain lines of business that are similar to those administrative back office functions, predominantly the human resources and financial management. Um, and uh, the idea is to say that agencies don't need to build their own uh, financial management systems or their own HR systems and processes that they can go to a provider who can provide that at scale, thus giving better service because they're providing uh, similar service across a broad range of customers for a good cost uh, and enabling them to redirect their limited budgets uh, away from having to recreate redundant administrative support stores and can put those more toward their mission. You guys, in the report, it outlines a couple of examples in the federal space, um, the HRLOB. Could you give, give us, uh, highlight those for us? Absolutely. So the Office of Personnel Management has led, uh, over the last 15 years, uh, a migration across federal HR systems uh, following both sort of mandatory uh, uh, processes and systems that are being used that are delivered by both Public sector providers, meaning agencies that are that are expert in understanding the federal rules and, and procedures for hiring, payment, uh, retire, health insurance, all of the things that make an HR experience uh, happen, as well as private sector experts in doing so. Uh, in addition, uh, OPM has helped uh, to drive a consolidation around payroll. Um, over the last uh, 15 years, which really has brought down uh, the cost of delivering checks to all federal employees who get paid every week for what they do uh, significantly and has made that process much more effective. Dan, the second strategy outlined in the report focuses on fraud and improper payment uh, prevention. What is an improper payment within the federal context, and what's the current state picture of improper payments in the federal government? So this has been an issue in the government for, for decades. The, a, a lot of what the government does is take tax dollars and provide it n as needed services um, for health care, for housing, for education. Uh, and it does so through a series of programs and a series of agencies. Um, and, and it spends a lot of time trying to understand who is eligible uh, and how much money are they eligible for, and when should they get that money so they can pay their school bill, so they can pay a medical bill, et cetera. So understanding who is eligible, uh, understanding how much they're eligible for, and understanding when they need to get the money matters a lot. And, and we're talking billions uh, and really hundreds of billions of dollars of the federal budget uh, across both discretionary programs, meaning programs that are funded every year by Congress, as well as what we call mandatory programs like Social Security or Medicaid, which are funded based on need. Um, and those are very important programs. Millions of Americans depend on those dollars. And getting that right matters a lot to the lives of Americans. It also matters a lot for taxpayers to make sure that we're not um, allocating money improperly to the wrong person at the wrong amount or at the wrong time. And those would be improper payments. Mm -hmm. Haynes mentioned earlier in our conversation the importance of implementing a lot of these strategies. So, Dan, um, what were some of the suggestions outlined in your report on how to implement these strategies. Right. Well, so for the procurement uh, issue, one of the areas that we talked about is something specific called, that, that we're referring to as cognitive category management. Okay. Uh, and we've actually done some follow-up work on that um, in the procurement arena to talk about you could use technology to take what the government center on category management, which we've talked about on this show and, and the center has talked about as well, uh, and apply these cognitive techniques to enable the government to save uh, you know, a significant portion of that $450 billion. So that's, that's one example cool. of, a, of, of an implementation arena. Uh, uh, other areas that the, the report talked about were more procedural, mm -hmm. um, things like, um, but, but important, things like 
hiring a strong federal chief information officer, hiring strong chief information officers in agencies, and empowering them uh, to make decisions that can direct IT spending in ways that uh, can achieve efficiencies. Taking an enterprise perspective that we talked about earlier, um, using cross-agency councils like the Chief Information Officers Council and making them uh, action-oriented in terms of their ability to work together on behalf of the taxpayer to create program efficiencies and effectiveness. Uh, understanding how to bring in industry best practices in an ongoing fashion. So this report was a point in time, mm-hmm. um, and uh, there's always going to be the the uh, evolution of technology is getting more rapid uh, each day. Uh, and so understanding how to know what's happening in the commercial space and how to leverage that, adapt that as appropriate for, for use in, in government is something that's very important. Uh, and then finally, understanding what to do first, mm-hmm. understanding how to use uh, the uh, tools like the budget process, the, the fiscal 2018 budget, which is being uh, discussed even now. Uh, OMB presented its initial budget proposal uh, last month, uh, and then sequencing those steps, all of the steps that we've talked about uh, here, in a way where you identify the achievable um, and identify a near-term strategy, and then also have in, in mind the longer-term steps that are needed to achieve lasting success. So what's next for the insights and and the recommendations outlined in these reports? What's How are you getting the message? out, what are you doing to make sure that these things are listened to? So we're working in partnership with the Technology CEO Council and with our colleagues across uh, IBM and uh, and the centers having discussions in a variety of different locations. We're talking with congressional staff, talking with uh, administration officials, with OMB, um, uh, with uh, the uh, new uh, officials who are coming in and taking leadership roles in the new administration to try to basically help them understand here are the private sector practices that they may be familiar with in their in their world before they came to government, and here's a pathway to adopt them in government so that you can really achieve the successes in ways that are um, uh, in keeping with government rules, procedures, and the unique circumstances of individual agencies. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. How are autonomous technologies advancing in healthcare? What's being done to enhance medical device design? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and more with Professors Jin O'Han and Monifa Von Cook from the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Maryland. Next week on a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the intersection of research and practice. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Mark Fuge, Assistant Professor at the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Maryland. So, you know, throughout the conversation, you've mentioned uh, the concept and reality of machine learning. So, you know, it's often touted 
uh, as a kind of, uh, and I don't want to overstate myself, but here, as a kind of universal silver bullet for many problems. So can you give us a specific definition of what we are talking about when we say machine learning? And from your perspective, why is it not necessarily that silver bullet? Okay. So when people think about uh, machine learning, the sort of 30,000-foot view of that is basically a, a, some math that I can learn from data so that I can make new predictions of, of things, right? So at the end of the day, it comes down to I see examples, and then I learn some function that I can uh, compute that then can predict a new thing. So I feed it an image, it tells me is it a cat or not, right? And this is a, a remarkable idea. It's remarkably general and that you can apply it to lots of different problems. Uh, and recently, there's been lots of uh, success, right? So the, in the news, you've, you've probably heard a lot about the term you know, deep learning or the AlphaGo, you know, where the computer beat a human playing Go, which people didn't even think was going to be possible for another decade. And again, it's this idea of I can take examples and I can kind of learn from that patterns, that, and those patterns will help me predict future performance. And so there's a lot of power there. What's, what's tricky with that is that people, it can be difficult to know, if, uh, based on our, you know, what we were talking about earlier, kind of when to trust those models. Like, how do I know under what conditions it is or is not true? And does it apply for all problems? So generally speaking, the harder the problem, the more data I need to find something that fits it well. And for certain things, we just don't have lots of data for that. So, you know, coming towards the crescendo, if you will, of this very interesting conversation around data-driven design and its application right now I'd like to talk about. And what I mean by that is I'd like to explore some of the successes. Um, So could you elaborate, identify, discuss examples of application successes of data-driven design in any industry? And then I want, the next question I would have is around government. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so I think you're you're going to see many cases in which uh, you can use these, uh, well, machine learning in general, and then specifically the the application of machine learning to the design of new products is a fairly new field. Um, so okay. So when we take a look at things like data driven um, models for industrial products, you'll hear a lot of um, terms being used today by, by creating digital twins. So the idea behind this is if I'm GE and I have a jet engine and it's flying on my plane, I'd like to know something about how that engine's going to do. Like when do I need to take it down? Because I don't want to have people sitting on the runway waiting for me to fix it. I'd like to get that fixed before everyone's unhappy because they want to go home to their families. Um, I would like to construct a digital version of that. So I can look at what the engine's doing, and then I create kind of a digital mock-up of this internally that I can kind of keep track on it, right? That's the, the twin aspect, if I had a, a twin for this. So people have used machine learning a lot for analyzing existing designs that, that are there. So when when is the machine going to break down? Can I service it before it does so people aren't upset with me? Can I replace a part before it breaks so it can be safer? Um, so these are examples that people use right now in, in industrial equipment. So the jet engine example is in use right now. Um, people do this uh, for, for cars. They'll do this for cell phones as well. You can um, basically detect when parts are going to break on things like smartphones by looking at uh, where it's been, what the accelerometer tells me, has someone dropped it recently. Um, So those are current industry examples. Being able to then take that and redesign products based on that is something that's very 
like late breaking stuff. I mean, this has really only been maybe five years, six years that people in the design community have been using, at least in mechanical engineering, have been using this to do that. So um, it takes a little while for that technology to work its way into products just because it takes a while for products to come onto the market. So, you know, any whether it's this, maybe it's even the conceptualization of, of design, data-driven design, do you see any um, of this being adopted or adapted to government in the delivery of government services or in the public sector in general? Sure, uh, definitely. So, for example, in a lot of the work that we do, we'll partner with government agencies that are generally producing products because I'm a mechanical engineer, although this, this general idea of how can we use design to help people be better can apply to lots of different agencies. Uh, but where you'll see this a lot is in um, you know defense and energy, so things where there's physical products going on. So for an example, actually, we're currently working on a project looking at designing new kinds of materials. So can I make a car uh, lighter? Can I make fuel uh, lighter and more effective? And that's a case where... Uh, Obviously, the energy Department of Energy is very interested in that. The uh, Department of Defense is obviously very interested in that. So those are both cases where the agencies that we're working for need to provide services to people, and those services depend on products performing at a certain level. Uh, and so the idea is, can we use data to help us make you know aircraft that are twice as power you know powerful or lighter? Uh, can we make fuel that we can transport safely that's not going to be uh, you know in any danger to people? Uh, these are all questions that data driven models and data driven design can help people answer. Would you say it's fairly in its infancy then? Um, yes and no. So like for example, we're, we're working on a, a you know, project right now where we're looking at uh, aircraft design, so improving uh, aircraft designs for the D Department of Defense. Uh, and in those cases, we've actually had some early successes where we've been able to show that you can get maybe uh, one to two orders of magnitude reduction in terms of the amount of cost and time it takes for you to make aircraft better, so like the human time necessary to compute it. Uh, but that's still a long way for being fielded in any specific thing because those things take 30 to 40 years from start to finish. So hopefully this, the ground, the seeds that we're laying today will grow fruit in 30 years. And I think that's sometimes the difficulty with connecting research to practice. And it's in these little ways of my airplane uh, ticket being a little less expensive than it, than it would have been, or me being able to get twice as much mileage out of my car. Little things that people don't think about uh, wh you know, when you're actually using the product uh, really got their start many, many years earlier. Uh, are there interesting ways uh, you can teach engineering today and engineers, uh, you know, soon to be engineers, uh, to think about how best to bridge the worlds of the digital and the physical world. Yeah, so this is this is an interesting question because we're we're living in an age now where you know traditionally, right? What what is engineering? Right, so engineering is using the tools from science and math to solve real people's problems. And traditionally, mechanical engineers have been doing things that make things move or that produce power. So think cars, batteries, things like that. Uh, and for hundreds of years, the solution, the sort of science and math that we use, is 
you know, Newtonian physics, so the stuff you learned about in, in high school uh, physics class, uh, and basically calculus. And that's been, those are really good tools. We've been using that for many hundreds of years, and they'll continue to serve us well into the future. But now what you're finding is that there's a whole host of other things that engineers can use, a whole other set of tools we can use to solve people's problems that students are now interested in and that have real applications. So this machine learning and statistics stuff is not the kind of thing that typically you would get in you know your high school physics and math and even through your college education, but those are really valuable tools to supplement what we know about the physical world. Um, so the kind of students that end up taking you know the course, so I teach a course in applied machine learning for engineering and design, uh, and one of the questions and, and students show up and they say, oh well, I'm really interested in how these you know how can my Nest thermostat learn you know what I'm doing and how does it adjust my system? Like can I make the building? Can I make an entire building much more efficient if I'm able to learn who's in the office when and where do I need to put the, you know, where do I need to pump cool air and not? Um, so there's all these questions that uh, these students are going to be faced with when they go and work for companies and being able to interact with computer scientists, to interact with electrical engineers, to interact with policy experts, to talk about, okay, what implications does do these data sources now have on the traditional physics and math that I would do in my engineering education is, I think, really important. That's great. So, you know, as we come to the close of the conversation, I was wondering, what does the future hold in this area? And perhaps you could give us a sense of where, where is it going? Sure. I mean, so if, if I was to kind of wave my big magic wand and look at the, you know, 50 years from now, uh, how is the world going to be different? Um, I think what you're going to see is that Right now, when we think about how we interact with products, it's it's almost like I go to the store, I buy it, that's the product that I bought, um, it works the way that I bought it to, and maybe it breaks over time, and then I buy a new product. I think what you're going to see in the future is the products that actually adapt to how we work and how we live. And that, to me, is exciting because you, you don't you, we think of software as being able to update, you know, optimize. So, you know, Facebook learns something about me and then they can update uh, how my experience and it improves my life in some cases. I think people don't think of products that way, but I think in the future we will. So we'll think about products that adapt to how we use them, that improve over time once they learn more about us, and just products that end up being less expensive, that perform better because they're able to take in data and understand how everybody else who's using their product is working with it. So if it, if it understands that I'm having this issue and it sees that everybody else is also having that same issue, okay, it's time to roll out a fix to that product. Um, so I think that's going to be a big sea change in terms of thinking of our products not as things, but as kind of almost living artifacts that can change with us, and then the new things are kind of better customized to us, where we can kind of live in symbiosis between the things that we produce and how we live our lives. And a lot of these things, your vision as you lay it out, it has, it has implications for you know, regulatory implications, governmental implications. And, and that's why I was glad to have you on today because you're looking into the future. You're doing the future now in some respects. As you said, you plant the seed and R&D and research, the intersection between research and practice is uh, maybe something that was planted 30 years ago and you're bearing, it's bearing the fruit now. But, you know, it was, it's, I think it's a wonderful conversation. I'm glad we, we were able to do it. Thank you for coming in. I was wondering if people want to get to know more about your work, um, how can they reach you? Sure. Um, 
So you can Google Google my name. I'm the first hit on Google. Uh, you can also go to my website, which is ideal.umd.edu. Uh, there we have access to the papers that we've written, um, some of the classes that we teach, and also uh, open source code that can do some of the stuff that, uh, that I've been talking about. Well, Mark, thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the intersection of research and practice with Mark Fuge, Assistant Professor at the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Maryland. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org.